Hello, this is Rick Millenthal, and welcome to Voices of Resilience, the podcast series that highlights personal journeys through adversity and trauma, finding hope and resilience. Today, I'm very excited because we have Akia and Michael Red. Akia is a thought leader, influencer, an advocate in mental health, and an author of Be Free, Be You. And Michael is the famed Buckeye great, NBA all-star, and now a business leader and host of his podcast, Betting on Yourself. They're a dynamic couple and a wonderful example of resilience. Akia and Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here with you guys today. Absolute pleasure, Rick. Thank you. So, Akia, I think I want to start with you. You're really the leader of your efforts in mental health. How did that all start? How did you get interested in this issue? Um, That's a really good question. I always love when I get asked that question because I like to start out by saying that I didn't choose it. It chose me. About four years ago, I received the official diagnosis of having uh, anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder, as well as some eating issues, some body image issues. And I think I started probably noticing these things when I was about 12, which is you know really common in middle school. That's probably when you start to see these things in tween uh, agers. So four years ago, I had this breakdown, but I also call it a breakthrough because it led me to my passion and purpose in mental health advocacy. And when I say breakdown, I mean, literally my body was physically shutting down. I wasn't able to function. I think that there was a lot that had happened in my past from my childhood and things that I buried and did not deal with. And once I received the diagnosis, I was determined that I wasn't going to continue to allow other people, in particular women and girls, to suffer in silence and to be ashamed or feel hopeless and stigmatized based on a mental health diagnosis. What do you mean in particular women and girls? Well, I think that me, myself, being a woman and having noticed a lot of Um, my anxiety and depression in my teenage years on up to teenage years, um, we face a lot of pressure from outside influences. The main one when I was growing up was media and school stuff and my family. I grew up in a pastor's home. So there was always this level of um, expectation and perfection that I had to meet. And that just wasn't jiving with my personality and what I could offer at the time. And so I think that I'm not the only girl. I think that I'm not the only woman who struggles with that. I think that in society now, the girls have it a little bit worse because there's this social media thing that kind of sets them up, you know? And so when I say women and girls, I really, there's really probably young as 10 all the way up until you know probably 50s and 60s because I've talked to all women and girls in that age range that say that they've struggled in some way or another with anxiety or depression or maybe even both. So really this came to head you were diagnosed 
uh, well into your marriage. Yeah. Michael, what was that like for you? The woman you married, the family you had, and to learn about this? Yeah, it was hard uh, to deal with because you are, in the moment, as a mate, powerless. You are totally just empathetic to what she's going through. Um, we don't. We didn't have the language initially to describe how she was feeling all these years, and so uh, to come across this was uncomfortable. And so, all the while, all I could do was just be there for her as best I could. Um, and with that, kind of understand the dynamics of what she was going through. Uh, look at the science. Look at the data. Um, begin to understand what it actually is that she was going through, and. Then there was a shift from what she's going through to what we're going through. It was definitely frustrating because you're seeing your mate, the one you love, go through what she's going through, and there's nothing you can do initially about it. Were you scared? Uh, never scared. Never scared. I think our roots in our faith are, are really, really strong, but um, never scared, but confused, maybe. Um, obviously ignorant of the whole anxiety disorder treatments and stigmas and all of that, you know, just completely not aware. And so immediately wanted to begin to hit the ground as far as like trying to understand how to cope with this, how to deal with this, how to, um, how to help her. You wanted to fix it, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you want to do whatever you can to see her not go through what she was going through. And then also at the same time, I think self care for me and also Therapy for me was huge. What do you mean by that? Well, yeah, self-care, meaning making sure that you're mentally uh, supported, whether it be through a therapist, whether it be through friends. So I had a great support system around me to help me because a lot of times we often forget about the person who's supporting the person who's dealing with anxiety. And so um, mentally making sure um, that I introspect, making sure that I continue to get the help that I need so I can be a help to our family and to her. You know, as Karen and I went down this journey, we ended up talking to a lot of very successful people, CEOs of companies, people that appear to have it all. Almost all of them have some journey when it comes to mental health. Do you find that sometimes? You know, the world looks at the Reds and say, they have it all. I could never live the life of the Reds. And almost don't know what to say when you are vulnerable and talking about a mental health challenge like this. Yeah, I, I feel like we've, we've got to redefine what success is. Our culture. Um, materials don't define happiness. Uh, money doesn't um, buy love or happiness. Um, and so, um, hopefully through us sharing our story and our journey can, can help others and inspire others, uh, just like them, we're, we're no different. So hopefully that helps. I would have to say to Rick that that was part of my, um, fear about being out with my issues and diagnosis in such a public way. Because I am aware that I have an amazing life and everything around me is good and um, I don't want for anything. But 
that's just the point of it is that that that's the reason why people don't come out because they feel shame or guilt for feeling the way that they feel when really being anxious, being depressed, as Michael has pointed out, has nothing to do with the things that you have or the relationship that you're in. There are some people that do have situational anxiety or situational depression. They've lost their job. They've received a poor health um, diagnosis. They've, um, you know, they have money issues. Their kids are, you know, really giving them a hard time and or there's a lot of pressure on them at work to perform. Yes, those are situational things where when their situation changes, sometimes the anxiety, the depression that surrounds that person will change. But then there's also this clinical side, this biological side that we have absolutely, the people who are ill or have a disorder have no control over. But people who are not familiar with the nuances of what mental health disorders or illnesses are and what they look like, have a hard time understanding that. That is why Michael was so wonderful when he decided to start educating himself because people that are loved ones of those who are suffering, that is the best thing that they can do is to try to educate themselves because that education will actually lead to more empathy. People feel alone no matter their so-called station in life. And that's why I was asking you that, whether in the beginning you sort of have what you, what you just said, it you called it shame and embarrassment. Yeah, I have actually asked myself that question when I look in the mirror, like, why the heck am I crying? My kids are healthy. My husband loves me. I actually love my husband. I'm happy in my relationships. I am living an amazing life, which you would call the American dream. What the heck is wrong with me? Why can't I just be happy? And that question can only be answered from the place that I just told you is that I had to come to terms and accept the fact that it is biological. It is clinical. There is absolutely nothing that I could have or receive or be living anything else that would change my biology. Mm -hmm. And that was freeing for me. You said it's freeing for you. So what did the two of you find when you became so public about this? There were loads of private DMs, you know, or direct messages and emails that I received from people that were like, oh my God, thank you for giving a voice to this. Thank you for putting words to what I'm feeling. Um. Most of those and most of the appreciation for what I was doing, unfortunately, came from those who didn't know me. The ones that knew me were not very comfortable and they were not very happy. And I have to say that that is actually what inspired, you know, this whole fearlessness Basically, or bravery, being afraid and doing it anyway, being feeling guilty, feeling shame and doing it anyway. Yeah, it's been interesting to see people be vulnerable about their journeys once you've come out. You, you've almost given people permission to say me too. And it's been a mixed bag. Like Kia said, some people feel uncomfortable about it. Some people are relieved 
and, and again, feel permission to, to share their stories now. So it's been, it's been overall, I would say positive in the fact that it's made people feel uncomfortable enough to come out and say and see changes in their life and also those who've been vocal about it. And so this has really impacted our lives and, and now we can share our story and feel a freedom in what we're dealing with yeah. and bust up the stigmas. Did it liberate you too, Michael? I mean, the world looks at you as, you know, having it all as well. Did it liberate you to talk about some vulnerabilities? Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been a private person for the most part. And, and uh, you know, that's valid because my life has been in the limelight since I was 15, 16 years old. But this is a cause that people from all around the world are dealing with. Everyone deals with it. If you're born, you deal with trauma, right? So um, everyone in, 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 in their own right deals with this to an extent. Uh, or have people around them that deal with this. So this is something that, you know, the both of us felt like it was important to share and hopefully help people uh, and inspire people and getting their story out and being able to deal with it and some of the ways to overcome it and to deal with it. Do you think this pandemic sort of put us all on some even level, sort of we're all going through some mental health crisis and maybe we actually realize that? I do, for sure. I do, for sure. I mean, not only the COVID, you're talking about social unrest in America. Um, Black people have dealt with trauma their whole lives. So you have the compound effect of social unrest, uh, killings from the police, inequalities, with COVID-19, it's, it's almost like an atomic bomb, you know, that's been set off this year for a lot of people mentally. Um, unemployment, uh, the list goes on and on. And so uh, this has been a, a really, really challenging year for a lot of people all around the world. And so IKEA's platform is more important now than it ever, has ever been before. So in many ways, you're right, Rick, when you say it's put us all on an even playing field, because this is what someone who is diagnosed, like all of the stuff that people all over the world, because of COVID, this is what I call situational anxiety, situational depression. And so it has put us on an even playing field. It's actually, I think, if, and I'm going to say if is the caveat here, if we allow it to show us how to be more empathetic to those who deal with these kinds of internal stressors on a daily basis, who even when COVID lifts and and it's okay and everything's safe again, and when everybody, the economy goes back and people's lives get back to air quotes normal, our normal is what everybody else is able to get away from. And so if we can just remember how that felt for us in the midst of COVID and apply that level of empathy to the people who are going to kind of stay in that place, that's what will help make this conversation even more normalized, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it feels like people are responding with these extremes. Some are responding with an empathy they never had, and some are responding to make sure they show the least empathy possible and almost celebrating their lack of empathy. It's, uh, it really is defining people, I think. Yeah. You talked about in your interview, I think it was on Michael's podcast, actually, that what has happened is a 
big mental health, I'd call catalyst within uh, uh, the black community? Yeah, it is. I think that overall, Michael said it so beautifully earlier, um, that black America has experienced a significant amount of trauma. And um, a lot of the trauma, to be quite frank with you, in Black Americans is passed down generationally. So like Michael said, if you're born, you, you have trauma. So basically, a lot of what Black America deals with was passed down from their grandfather, grandmother, down to their parents. And if you get really lucky, you get parents that understand how to break the cycle. Most people don't. It's more common that they will receive trauma just by being raised by someone who was traumatized and grew up in an era where um, Black people were considered less than. And that really, really um, plays into the mental health and self-love of the African-American community. I think it also you know, points to the fact of they feel trapped. Like there's really nothing they can do and they don't want to go to a therapist and tell anybody that they are struggling because they already feel like America doesn't look at them as equal. So why would I want to go and be honest about something that is going to make me look like I can't cope or I can't deal? And so they're quiet and they suffer in silence. What an interesting insight. I already may have some feelings of being displaced. And so I am not going to be vulnerable and make it worse. Right. They're not going to share with you. They're not going to tell you, you know, and let's be honest. I mean, there's not a whole bunch of, you know, black psychiatrists, black psychologists. Um, you know, those are rare unicorns. And, um, and so they definitely don't feel comfortable talking to someone that doesn't look like them about stuff like that, because that's going to make them look even more incapable. Yeah. I mean, again, you, you, I don't have to add too much to it. You said it perfectly, but um, uh, the omission of vulnerabilities further puts me down the list of getting higher and being in a position to, uh, to get a job. So there, <laughs> there's a lot of dynamics to it. But at the end of the day, this has been an incredible year in so many ways. I've been consulting with corporations over the last, I don't know, three, four months. Change is always relevant, always needed. But if there isn't a refinement that happens or a metamorphosis of a heart and a mind, that person will mishandle any change that comes. So there's tremendous petition for change and, and, and we need it. But if my mind isn't changed and my heart isn't changed, then I'll mishandle and missteward the change that I receive. For example, Rick, um, I was thrown into a squad car at 11 years old, put in handcuffs. Hmm. To this day, I get followed by the police. When I'm not identifying who I am, I get tailed. And then they find out who I am and they say, oh, we're fans, you know. That's an everyday thing. And thank God I don't suffer from PTSD from it. But millions of black people do, you know, so I can't receive the change with hate in my heart. But uh, speaking as a black man and, and 
as a black couple, we've, we've experienced our levels of trauma um, within this country. And then you compound that with COVID and then you compound that with social distancing and then you compound that with being quarantined. And it's been an incredible year. And um, in so many ways, hopefully that makes sense. Well, actually, you just gave me an epiphany. You know, we've all watched now African-American athletes after pretty much years not wanting to speak about politics, not wanting to speak about these issues, and, you know, for good reason. And this year, that's changed. We have heard these athletes both want to be examples to the African-American community and have a voice for the general community on just the issues you're talking about, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a unique time for um, athletes to be vocal about what they stand for. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting times because I, I really appreciate all of the symbolism that has happened. We've got to have people who um, have power and authority to actually share that power and authority and put their money where their mouth is. So, yeah, I, I was very proud to see this generation of athletes be more vocal and and be um, more passionate about the social issues of the day. Prayerfully, hopefully we see that leads to change and not just being patronized. What do you think is the change you're looking for? I think there's too big of a gap. There's a, too big of a dispersion economically. Um, I think, um, again, you can put Black Lives Matters on the court. And you can put justice and equality on the back of jerseys. At the end of the day, there's only one African-American owner. At the end of the day, there's only one African-American president of basketball operations in the NBA. So we've got to see change governmentally and economically at the CEO, executive ownership level. We've got to talk about diversity and equity more than inclusion. And so board level, executive level, there has to be a level of diversity at those levels. If not, you know, we won't see much change. I'll give an example. There's over 2,000 plus billionaires in the world. There's only four African-American billionaires. It's a wide gap. And it's not about necessarily just hiring black people. It's hiring the best people and partnering with the best people. And unfortunately, African-American people, Latinas, minorities have not had those opportunities afforded to them. So I appreciate marching and I appreciate symbolism and all of that, which is great, but we've got to be able to have seats at the table. Yeah, I agree with that. We've got to reform minds and hearts before we expect people to behave differently. And the reality of it is, is there's no point in, you know, changing things if the person that you're changing them for is not able to, or doesn't have the tools to handle the change. Um, Because no matter what, if you have an enslaved mindset, if you have an enslaved mentality, you know, the enemy is really in your mind and not outside of you. And so no one can do that or undo that, but you. So I think also not only individualized or group situations of mental health treatment for Black Americans, but I also think it would be really helpful in corporations and companies that, you know, for us to be able to have places where black and white and other people of color come together to just understand each other better. I think that when you do that, 
not only is empathy cultivated, but you also are able to see that we have more in common and there's more that unites us than it is that divides us. Yeah, Rick, I, I agree. And I want to applaud you for um, allowing these discussions to be on your platform. Um, they're very challenging to a lot of people. And, and again, as we talk about these issues when it comes to mental health, social unrest, we want to be educational as possible. Um, and, and that's been our position um, over the last six months since the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and um, uh, Ahmaud Arbery and, and on and on and on. Um, and I think, I think in America, um, uh, integration has been a goal for so many centuries. Integration has been a goal. And the fact of the matter is integration is not a goal. It's a fact. Elaborate on that a bit. Integration is a fact. Yeah, it's not a goal. It's, it's, I, I'm not from Africa, I'm from America. Mm-hmm. And so we, we cannot continue to um, live in the mirage that we're not together when we are together. We've been together for 450 years plus. Um, so it's not something that we should aspire to like be together one day. It's no, we are together and we need to conduct ourselves and behave appropriately. Man, that is beautifully said. And I haven't heard it said that way. And you're so right. We're on the planet together. We're in the country together. Uh, It's a fact. It's just what we're going to do with that. How are we going to celebrate each other's differences? I think it's just a matter of just really loving each other and really empathizing from each other and putting ourselves in each other's shoes and referring one another and, um, you know, getting over the fact that I'm a different color pigment. We've got to cross those barriers. And I think there's incredibly talented people that just have not had access and opportunity for whatever reason. So I often say people are not a product of their environment. They're a product of a lack of opportunity. I'm petitioning and and really fighting for, for the rest of my life, just real change and not to be patronized and placated. Yep. Akia, you have a new book coming out, right? I do, Rick. I do. It's called Authentic You, and uh, it's coming out November 16th, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. And it, this one um, is really close to my heart. I love everything that I, that I write usually, but this one is specifically um, just really close to my heart because for as long as I can remember, Michael and I, from the time that we've been together, it was nearly you know 17 years now. We have had a heart for youth, you know, young, young people. And um, this book is really just a nod to that. It's, it's kind of getting back to my roots of helping youth. In particular, the book is written for young women. And when I think about the book in the manuscript, I went back to when I was 12 years old, 13 years old, 14, 15 16, 17. And there are stories from all of those different stages in my life. And I talk about the things and tell the stories from my life experience, but also talk about the things that I wanted to to be um, told when I was those ages. And I try to answer the questions that I had when I was those ages. Yeah. But I have to say this focus on teaching young girls on how to be resilient. 
I really think that's a wonderful focus. At least I feel like that's really your focus and the example that you're showing that you think you can make some real change. Am I right? You would be absolutely accurate with that. You know, I think that one of the biggest and best lessons that you can ever teach a teenager, a teenager is that if they are struggling, life does not stop because you receive a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You can move past it. Okay. I have a diagnosis or, okay, this happened to me and I really didn't love it. But what can I do now to move forward and to actually use that experience? Because I'm a firm believer that no experience is ever wasted. Hey, you talk about in the book about, I call it, did you call it the Tarzan theory or philosophy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I live by that. Michael has heard it a gazillion times because really he models that for me very well. And I am now living it and adopting it as a mantra. Um, we do life in this relationship um, that we are not afraid to jump off of the vine we're on because we understand if we jump off of the vine that we're on, that is the only way that the next vine is going to appear. And we call it the Tarzan-like faith. I really like that. And you just implied what my next question was, because I think about Michael and his unbelievable, incomparable career as an athlete. But then he retired, Michael, and you said, I'm going to become a business person. Wasn't that a vine you left and a vine that you were jumping onto? 100%. 100%, Rick. I I always wanted to to operate in business in some capacity. I, I never allowed myself to be completely identified as an NBA player or basketball player. Um, that's what I did. Never who I was. And so I think having identity be solidified allows you to be diverse and versatile in your life, in life choices. But it was certainly definitely a, a new bond. And, um, and life is all about new challenges, new scenes. Um, and it was something that I just wanted to be a part of. And not just for the sake of being in business, but like there's an end result in that to help people. That was the core value that I've always kind of lived by as part of my identity, whether it be to entertain people through basketball, whether it be a role model, kids, to inspire young kids and young women and boys. And even in this phase, that's, that's the core value that's kind of carried me through my adult life. Listen, when you start, you're not a star in the beginning, are you? Far from it. Far from it. It's, it's interesting that you say that because, uh, and I've said this on our podcast, you know, you go from being senior level in one space to being <laughs> a freshman or a junior level. And so that, that takes a tremendous amount of uh, humility. But I've always wanted to be around the best people my whole life. I wanted to be around the best basketball players because I would get better. Taking that mentality and trait with me into this whole business world. And, um, but yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Still a novice, still want to stay a novice in a lot of ways. Um, and continue to be curious and learn from great people. You know, I'm in partnership on this endeavor with my wife, Karen, who produces this, and I'm going to surprise her. Karen, do you have a mic at all? 
because you're on with us. I'm on. I'm on. See see how thrilled she is that I called her out? (laughs) Okay, I want you on because I'm really, 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 I'm really, really inspired by Akia and Michael. And I want to say something with you on. Michael had his amazing athletic career. Akia started down the road of uh, an advocate in mental health. But now you have the time to do some of these things together, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And that's a little bit how we've been feeling about this effort with Voices of Resilience and uh, like you, having this uh, uh, journey in mental health. Karen, I, I think this was this was one of the more amazing episodes we've had talking with both of them. And uh, I know that the two of us really relate to what they're what they're doing, don't we? Yeah, I I want to say to both Michael and I, uh, Akia how grateful we are that you decided to to or you chose to come on together this morning. And the thing that I found so wonderful about the conversation is how you've supported each other throughout the years. I mean, I think Akia, your first book starts with you talking about walking into an NBA game, like being totally unprepared for what that was going to be like. And, you know, in your years of marriage now, you know, Michael's supporting you in this um, advocacy for mental health. And I just can't tell you how I admire you both for the way you've navigated so many parts of your life. And I find it really, really inspiring. That really warms my heart. Yeah, Michael has been superbly supportive. I mean, we have those moments where we're able to, you know, really inspire each other, learn from each other, grow together. And as a couple, I think what we both have learned and are continuing to learn is patience and being flexible, being adaptable. Those are two things I think that we've learned you know, very well on this, on this uh, new journey together. You know, it's a, this is a podcast about resilience and Akia just spoke to it. I think marriage is one of the most complicated relationships in the world and the most common one in the world. And I think that most people don't really understand that when you get married, you think you're buying, you know, you're buying a ticket to one place and inevitably you end up someplace else. And I think strong marriages show that kind of resilience. Uh, Karen, so sweet. Thank you for saying that. Um, you, you know, I think to piggyback what you just said, I think marriage is the easiest relationship to be reconciled as well. Smart man. <laughs> yeah, I've just pretty much just learned to um, listen to Kia. <laughs> uh, Rick can probably uh, relate to that. I sure can. I mean, I promise you, I didn't realize how unaware I was until I met her. We went to dinner last night and I said, uh, I don't know what I would do without you in my life. And I mean that because um, you only see life through a certain prism um, when you're single and whatnot. And then, you know, vision becomes very wide once you partner with someone. And my vision on life has has so increased um, because she's been in my life. So um, I have a coffee mug here at the house and I, it says uh, uh i don't google anything i just ask my wife <laughs> <laughs> hopefully that that sums it up basically 
It does. Well, that was beautiful. Let me ask one more thing that I always ask at the end. Do you have hope? Hope for the community? Hope on this issue? Yeah, I do. I think although we have a little ways to go, I think that I am so hopeful because we're getting there. And um, it's things like this, your platform that you and your wife, Karen, have created that will help us get there. We're better together. And the more that we, the more people we have talking about this types of, these types of things that all look different, right? And that have all different diverse backgrounds. Um, there's a relatability there and there's a normalization there. And I think that that is the hope. I couldn't agree more. I think me and Akia are just full of optimism um, about the future, about our community, about uh, the stigmas being blown up. Um, I think it's just a matter of continuing to educate people um, on skill sets and tools. Um, so we always talk about IQ being an issue or EQ, emotional intelligence. But I think another Q is RQ, relationship intelligence. And, and that's a, a major, major thing that I've worked on personally within our marriage and our dynamic of learning about how to deal with mental health. And I think everyone has the ability, it's just a matter of learning the skill sets and having the tools in the toolbox to, to, to work with, to help people and to relate to people. Akia and Michael Red, you're an inspiring couple. That was terrific. That's going to inspire a lot of people who are going through these challenges. But frankly, it's going to inspire couples or loved ones that are working on navigating each other's challenge. That is just awesome that you came on. You're sharing. You're doing these brave things. And I think you're going to help many people find resilience. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you both for having us. Beautiful platform. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. Wow, that was powerful to see this successful couple share their vulnerability is, is just really special. To learn more about what Akia is doing, visit akiared.com, A-C-H-E-A-R-E-D-D.com. And to learn more about what Michael's doing, visit michaelred.com, including you'll find his podcast, Betting on Yourself. That was terrific. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers of the Shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to more episodes, visit VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com or find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Play. Many thanks to our production team, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, Magnetic Studios, and my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.